Last week we walked through the beginning of chapter 2 in Ephesians. Now if you see where we are in our roadmap of this, as usual we're going line by line, kind of spending time really understanding the meaning of Ephesians. And I've made the comment routinely now that a lot of Paul's thanksgiving and doxology language is language that we tend to just skim through. We never actually focus on what it says because it just seems like it's a bunch of praiseworthy statements and we're not really sure what it means. We're actually trying to understand what it means by looking at it much more closely. So we've been through the opening, the doxology, the thanksgiving, which brought us to the end of chapter 1. And last week, we spent time in chapter 2 looking at it very carefully, verses 1 through 10. And so tonight we press forward, but let me remind you of where we ended in verses 9 and 10 because Paul just launches right from those verses. Here they are at the end. For it is by grace that you've been saved, through faith. This is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast, for we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. And we spent quite a bit of time last week kind of camping out in this juxtaposition that seems to be present. Some people would champion verse 9, look, it's not by works, it's by grace, it's a gift from God. And yet you lay down verse 10 right next to it. It's because of that salvation that we were intended from the beginning to do good works. That was the intention for us to do good works. So we can't ignore those at all. Paul's going to make a transition right now to talk about the Gentiles being brought into the church. So I'm starting in verse 11. Therefore remember that formerly you who are Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcised by those who call themselves the circumcision, which is done in the body by human hands, Remember that at that time you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel, and foreigners to the covenant of the promise, without hope and without God in the world. And let me just be clear that the emphasis is on without hope and without God, you were in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Focus for the second just on what he's saying. Here is another juxtaposition of remember, or formally, you were like this. Remember last week he starts off by saying, you were dead, before he described how we were made alive. And now he's saying, formally, you were uncircumcised. You were separated from Christ. And he's actually commanding people to remember that. Remember where you were. Remember formally you were uncircumcised. Remember at that time you were separated from Christ. Excluded from citizenship. But now. But now things have changed. And there's a very key distinction. But now... In Christ Jesus, you've changed. It's, again, Paul's theology of being in Christ. This whole letter stands on this idea of us being in Christ. This doesn't sound too controversial. I think most of us can understand this. Question? 
I'm just wondering, it's not totally on topic, but kind of if you knew there was an idea um, back then about people converting to Judaism, like not that you had to be a Jew before a Christian, but just in Judaism itself, like could you, if you were not like by blood Jewish, become a Jew at that time? Because the way he's talking about like by those who called themselves a circumcision, that you were like separate from Christ, excluded from the citizenship in Israel, like excluded. So, The answer to your question is yes. There were some examples of people who converted to Judaism. This is even before the issue of whether you needed to be a Jew to receive Christ or be in Christ. So yes, there was that. It was not the, the norm. It was probably more of an exception. But there were definitely people, even within certain schools of thought, like certain rabbinical schools, who believed that that was part of the goal. You might remember Jesus saying, like, you travel over land and sea to gain one convert, right? That was an example where he was making reference to somebody who would, that there was at least, to somebody he was speaking to, in that case the Pharisees, I believe, that it's not foreign that this would happen, you know? And then he says, but you make them twice the son of hell as you are, kind of that concept, right? So the concept is not foreign, but people even outside of Scripture comment that this actually did happen, and we have Jewish interpretation on how it was to be done and stuff. So while it's not the huge emphasis, it was definitely there. And the thing that's interesting is you pick up that theme because he is kind of talking about these two groups, the circumcision and the uncircumcised. This was actually ways that the Jews referred to themselves and to others. It was, of course, probably not a Gentile distinction. I don't know that most Gentiles were craving the kind of genital mutilation required to join the club at this point, right? But what was going on in this case was the Jews constantly referred to themselves in this way. Like this title is one where he's putting in quotes because he's saying, you refer to yourself as the circumcision. And you constantly make a separation for those who are uncircumcised. So the commandment is to the Gentiles that he's speaking to, remember. But that was like of the body as opposed to of their spirit. Well, it's interesting because he does say that you were formerly by birth, Okay, uncircumcised. By birth actually is better translated in some way like in the flesh uncircumcised. So he means it kind of negatively and pejoratively when he's talking about how this is something going on. Like those who call themselves the circumcision, it's done by human hands. Again, but what Christ is going to do in his body will unite that. The whole focus of Ephesians so far has been on what is God doing? It's all about God. And here we see God doing the reconciling between these groups, breaking down the divide between them. But I want to focus on those words, remember. Because he is saying, look back and see where you are. It's another reason that you should have this praise, this thanksgiving. This grace has been given to you. And you should think, wow, I kind of barely made it. Like, how am I even here? Because I used to be somewhere else, cut off, separated from Israel. Probably not literally the nation of Israel, but maybe the spiritual Israel. The idea of God's people. You were cut off. How do you break that separation? How do you find this reconciliation? In Christ Jesus. You were once far away, but now have been brought near. We also should not ignore these words. By the blood of Christ. We don't like the blood language anymore. We don't like the idea of this being an atonement. 
a sacrifice. But that is exactly what he's referencing here. It is not just by some haphazard relationship to Jesus. It's by the blood. By the thing that does violence is probably closer. By the blood of Christ, it's there and present. That's how we come close. So, what does this all mean? He goes on and says, Consequently, therefore, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household. And he begins here to create the analogy of the Jews and the Gentiles together building a temple. He says, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by the Spirit, His Spirit. There's the in Him language again. In Him, these two, Jew and Gentile, are united together. And He gives this analogy of building this temple that God will reside in through His Spirit. It's not difficult to understand. And maybe for us, for a moment, we don't care. Because to us, the idea of Jew and Gentile is so old, it really doesn't affect us. Except, let me point out a couple things. Maybe for the most part, except for maybe one person I know, most of us could be counted among the Gentiles to begin with. Like we have no claim to God's original covenant in this way unless it had been for what God has done we ourselves should be a little bit excited, probably more than a little bit thankful, totally astonished that God would do this to expand his grace to the Gentiles, by which I would say like probably 95% of us are counted in that group, had no other access to God in this way. All right, maybe that doesn't really stir you up much to praise and thanksgiving. Again, you think that's just an ancient debate. I'm not really part of it. How about the newer one? Isn't the way that we look at Jews and Gentiles today, like we count ourselves, well, yeah, we're Gentiles, we're in. But how about the way that we look at people outside the church? Haven't we in some weird way taken the place of the Jews? Haven't we in some way started to see ourselves as the circumcision? Or maybe a better word for us would be the saved, the chosen ones the ones who are elect, whatever your language might be, use whatever you want. Like somehow, no matter how screwed up I am, no matter what's going on inside of me, I've at least got this thing straightened out. And this puts me in right relationship with God, unlike all those other uncircumcised people. Or fill in whatever you were. Like non-church, non-Christian, non-something. They're always like non-something. Just like in their day, it was un-something, uncircumcised. How does that fit into what Paul is saying about breaking down this dividing wall, this structure that he's going to talk about in a minute again? We need to think about that for a second because something like this is just inconsequential otherwise. We just go, right, great, thanks be to God, 
He united Jew and Gentile. And then the Gentiles just took over. Man, don't we have a great church today. We just took over the whole Western world with it. Awesome. Yeah, but that would miss the application for us. That we're still in that same place. You have to remember Paul was somebody whose whole ministry was marked by championing the gospel to the Gentiles. Paul was somebody who was opposed by other Christians for taking the gospel outside of Judaism. And, of course, his views won the day. Probably because they were ordained by God. That was his ministry to do. But where are we? What do we think about that in that way? Because we seem to leave a lot of people in these distinctions. There is pride in those quotations that he's talking about when he says we are the circumcision and the uncircumcised. When you start to add labels and distinctions and you make something better and something is denigrated, that's a mark of pride. And it's actually going to impede the gospel rather than help it. I think we need to think through that for a second. If you're following along in your scriptures, you've noticed I've missed a part, right? So, so far I jumped from one part to another. So what we've done so far is we've looked at 11 through 13 and 9 through 22. So we've looked at that part and this part, and what I've got to do is make room (laughs) to bring in this part, which we haven't talked about yet, okay? I left this part for the later part of our discussion because... Those other two connect really nicely, and we might actually be able to understand what he's saying, even though we're going to just kind of not apply it, because we lack the context to say, so what do I do with this today? So you have to think through some of my previous comments. But this part, if we focus in on a little bit, this part we're tempted to just walk through and kind of miss a very important part of the text, because it sounds like he's just throwing in some language to bridge these two ideas and say, Here's where you were, and consequently, here's what you're doing together. But in the midst of this, he's describing how. How is it that this reconciliation could even happen? How is it that this wall will be broken down? And it will not surprise you that Paul is going to say, it's in Christ. For he himself is our peace. Let's just stop there for a moment. He himself is our peace. Sounds easy? Paul is probably hearkening back to the Hebrew equivalent, shalom, which is not just the cessation of hostility, not just like a relative sense of peace the way we might understand it. Some of you have understood and studied the word shalom. No, it's a much more holistic understanding of peace. It's more complete. It's more robust. Paul himself uses peace in a lot of different ways. Here's just some of them that are scattered throughout different places to look at how he sees peace. It's not just, like I said, the absence of some sort of conflict or war. He says, God is a God of peace. Christ is the Lord of peace. The gospel is a gospel of peace. Peace is an eschatological reward. It's something that we're going to get in the end. That's our end. Peace is equivalent to salvation. Peace is the goal of all human relations. The fruit of the Spirit, one of them at least, is peace. So peace is not just, like I said, it's a small concept. And these are just some of the places where if you do a word study through Paul's letters on peace, you see how he surrounds it. So when he says something like, he himself is our peace, he's saying something very significant. 
Yes, Jesus is peace. You could say that Paul is saying that without him there is no peace. He is peace. Not just ours, but just he's peace. He's probably hearkening back to a couple Old Testament prophecies about Jesus being the bringer of peace. I want to explain how these would figure into Paul's writings. Most commentators hear an echo of these verses because by the time of the first century, as Paul is writing, the Targums, the Jewish interpretations that surrounded these scriptures already were applying them to the Messianic hope. The idea that the Messiah was going to come and usher in these things. So Paul is not trying to bend the Old Testament to fit what he's saying. He's taking the interpretations as people understood them, that these were going to be the things that mark, identify the Messiah, and he is going to be a bringer of peace. Isaiah 9.6 should not be a stranger during the season that we're in right now, especially during Advent. For unto us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Another one that he was probably contemplating as he wrote him being peace is Isaiah 52.7, also interpreted by the Hebrew scholars at the time to be a messianic prophecy. How beautiful on the mountains are the feet of those who bring good news, who proclaim peace, who bring peace, who bring good tidings, who proclaim salvation, who say to Zion, your God reigns. Closely linked, Zechariah 9, 9 and 10. It says, Rejoice. Rejoice greatly, daughter of Zion. Shout, daughter Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you, righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. He will proclaim peace to the nations. His rule will extend from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. Those are all marks of the Messiah. You could probably identify the first part of Zechariah 9.9 when we did our study of Matthew, kind of pointed to the Palm Sunday entrance at the same time. He's peace. Who has made two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility? That's exactly what we've been talking about. These two groups, Jew and Gentile alike, brought together by destroying this dividing wall. How did he do it? By setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations. Remember earlier, circumcision was in the flesh. He was kind of highlighting those words, in the flesh. That was a literal reading. So here, there's that play on the idea of in the flesh. Because Christ, in the flesh, abolishes that wall, breaks it down, and sets aside the law. Let me pause there for a second and ask you this. Does it trouble you at all that it says that Christ will set aside the law? Yeah. I guess the, the verse in Matthew where it says that not to abolish the law. That seems like it contradicts. So here he's describing Christ in a way that seems to contradict Christ's own words in Matthew, right? So we have that idea of not one letter of the law will pass away, right? Not a single stroke until it's all fulfilled. And here he seems to say, That, yes, we're all on board with breaking down this dividing wall between the two groups. That's awesome. And how did he do it? By setting aside in his flesh the law. 
I thought you're not supposed to set aside the law. Morgan? It doesn't conflict because he was able to fulfill the law, and the result is that the law is set aside. You know, so I think I don't think there's a contradiction. And also, like if we look at Galatians, Paul describes the law as for a time it was it was a pedag- pedagogos, which is actually like a Roman teacher. So like there's a time in your life where you need something, and Paul uses that analogy as well. So the law has this; it still has importance, but it was for a time the most important, and then something greater came, which is Christ. And so he fulfilled the law and set it aside. There is a little bit of tension here. We have to acknowledge it because Jesus' words earlier are, heaven and earth will pass away, but the law is not going to pass away. But Morgan's on to something, that the idea that Christ came to fulfill the law, one interpretation is that it no longer applies in the way that it did before if it does. Right. So that's one way to look at it is Christ fulfilled the law. He didn't set it aside. He fulfilled it. Right. But another way to look at this passage is to see that it is not setting aside the law. That would be incomplete anyway. It's setting aside the law with its commands and regulations. So a second interpretation of this is what Paul is really going after here is what the law became. What the law became when it was in human hands with all the different commands and regulations that went along with it Because as he says elsewhere, that did not bring life, that brought death. So maybe that's what he's trying to break down. Remember also, he's trying to break down this divide between the Jews and the Gentiles. And by this time, the Jews used the law as another way to divide themselves. Another way to separate themselves was their law keeping. It became just like circumcision was one example the entire law with its commands and regulations became a similar thing of showing how we are so different or read it, we are so much better because we live by the law. And that was part of the divide. Jeremy. I think along the same, same lines, um, you, know, you don't have to look to Jesus as a fulfillment of the law. Jesus spends a significant amount of time talking about the problems with the law already, right? When he says that Humanity, or that we weren't made for the Sabbath, right? The Sabbath was made for, made for us. So the idea being that, you know, even Jesus recognized the distortion of the law or what it had become, and and he, he, he there are stories where Jesus is correcting the Pharisees for, you know, when his when disciples are picking grain on the Sabbath, or you know, and he says, you know, so it's not like he's saying, well, you shouldn't observe the Sabbath, right? Or that you, you shouldn't participate in this activity, right? Because it's a holy activity. And at the same time, you, you guys have taken this way out of one. You, you don't understand the proper context for what the law really was. And you've made it something else, right? And, 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 there, I mean, and Jesus does this throughout, throughout the Gospels, where he kind of provides this corrective lens for the law. Okay. Yes. The whole point of the law and the history of Israel was to point towards the people needing a savior. So you had all these sacrifices and rules and regulations to point toward the fact that they were not complete in and of themselves. So when Jesus came, he fulfilled the law by becoming that sacrifice. So the point of the law, which was the need for saving, was still there. But the need for sacrifices and the rules and regulations were no longer needed because he had fulfilled, he had taken that role. So in that sense, the law still remained. It wasn't the, the, the need for salvation hadn't gone anywhere, but the rules and regulations defining that were no longer 
And there's definitely something to the fact that we call it the new covenant, right? For a particular purpose, because we're now under this covenant of grace. The question that always remains is, what do we do with the law? And that's a question we've come back to over and over because it's not easy to address. And again, we're not going to a series on what the applicability of the law is to us. But I want to point out that as we skim through this section and not read it carefully, we could read this as saying that Christ's purpose was to set aside the law. And there's either you're going to pick one of those two ways to either say no, because the, what he's really talking about is setting aside the way in which it was used to divide by instituting a law or a covenant of grace that is actually going to be over both Jew and Gentile at this point. Or that it really is focusing on the law with its commands and regulations, which seems to be a very interesting addition that he makes, instead of just referring to it as the law as he does in other places. He seems to add those words intentionally. Okay? Just so that we're not reading too fast and skip over that. Why did he do this? His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two. That's the ultimate unity that we look for. A new humanity in Christ. Remember, he is our peace. That word peace, by the way, is not just a horizontal type of peace between Jew and Gentile. Really, God becomes our peace as we identified in some of those other ways that Paul uses peace in a vertical sense. Like, he is the one that allows us to make peace with God. As we will see at the end of this verse, that interpretation is actually directly meant. And the way that we accomplish that, again, no surprise, is in Christ. He's taking two and thus making peace in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross by which he put to death their hostility. You know, if you know something about the temple practices of the Jews, there were places within the temple that the Gentiles could not go under penalty of death assuming, of course, that the Jews had the ability to carry that out, which in most of their times they did not. They did not allow the Gentiles to move into certain places. This idea of the dividing wall of hostility could be an allusion to tearing down that distinction where they now are able to be in this temple that he was describing that they were going to be building in the next section together. That there is no longer going to be this divide anymore. But again, how is it done? In Christ. Are you getting tired of me reminding you about in Christ? It seems like the entire point of Ephesians. And it seems like one of the things we don't get. Like we think in Christ, meaning subsumed into him. Not just him as our boss or our head with us as like the independent body running around needing some direction from him. It means like literally one in Christ. All of us together and all of us in him. And that's what it means to have this reconciliation to God. It comes through the cross. But notice it's always God who does the reconciling. Be hard-pressed to find any type of passage in the New Testament where we reconcile to God. God is always the one doing the reconciling. It's always been his plan. It's always been his intent. And it's always his action to reconcile. Just like it says, to even reconcile all things to himself. Here, it's saying in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross. 
by which he put to death their hostility. He came and preached peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near. You could skip right over that without realizing, when did Jesus go and preach peace to people who were far away? Is that in those lost gospels that we've never read? Where is that going on? And if you understand Paul's theology of how closely we are associated with Christ, you'll realize he's talking about the other apostles. He's talking about himself. Who went out to the far places to reach the Gentiles? Paul did. But he doesn't attribute that to himself here in any way. He attributes his action to that of Christ. And I want to just pause there for a second because this is a good place for us to check our souls to actually get some profit out of all this highfalutin praise language. How often do we do things for Christ that we actually take credit for, even if it's not to say, hey, look at me, but just we use the language as if we're doing this? How often is it that we say, yes, we're the body and he's the head, but it's really like the body is running around like the headless horseman doing its own thing without being totally in Christ. His language here is very astonishing to me. Because you could say, I don't remember Christ doing any of this, but Paul is really saying, me and the other apostles. Remember, he's going to talk about in the next section, upon the foundation of the apostles and the prophets that came before, Christ becomes the cornerstone. The stone that the whole building will not stand if it wasn't for that stone. The whole weight of the structure will rest on that stone. Again, another messianic reference from the Old Testament about the cornerstone. But how often do we just do things as independent agents, Maybe even as little corporate agents with little groups or organizations or churches or whatever it is without really using language that shows how deeply embedded we are in Christ to the point that all of it, when we say, well, the glory goes to God, this would be a great example of that. This would be a great example that I don't know many who've achieved, who are doing something that is so, I don't know, what's the word, anonymous? They're doing it so much that they, they are not there, just as John the Baptist would say, he must increase and I must decrease. Like my ministry is nothing but to point the way to him. And this is even to go even further. Yes, Paul makes a point once in a while when he's debating and he's arguing about things that he has done and he'll make points about his qualifications or his credentials when he has to. But here in the midst of this praise of what God has done, he attributes everything that he has done to God, to Christ. Because his theology is, we're in Christ. And if we're in Christ, there is nothing but Christ. Yeah, I I think it's, I just thought it was more of a reference to, like, the stories of, uh, let's say, the Syrophoenician woman, right, like the Gentile, because Jesus did, I mean, he clearly preached to the Jews first, um, but he seemed to have, there are these indications of this expansion that the apostles definitely ran with, Um, so I've just never heard of that thought of Paul really, uh, you know, referring to the apostolic ministry here. To me, I don't see that. But, I mean, the point is certainly there either way.
Yeah, and I think the reason it's so clear is because he says he came and preached peace to you, who he's speaking to, the Gentiles, right? Remember, the letter is directed to somebody. It's not just directed to all Gentiles of the world. It's directed to the Gentiles of Asia Minor. Like, he preached to you, which would either be totally false, or there's a bunch of things in the Gospels we haven't seen, right? Or more likely, which fits right into the context of what he's talking about, this comes in, especially if you look at the word you being directed to the recipients of a letter. Okay, so here's the last part. And again, I just so I, I, I beat this dead horse because I keep doing it. I, when I read something like verses 14 through 18, these are the verses that I would just kind of go, let's get to the rest of the letter. You know, enough with all these words. And yet, in these words are some very important concepts that I think we miss. I'm mindful of this because Philip has asked us for a number of years now, it's been years, not months, years, <laughs> to to do a series on the purpose of the local church. What's interesting is commentators, when they look at this particular passage, think that this says a lot about the purpose of the church itself. Now, you're like, where? Because the word church isn't even in there, which they also know. But this whole section is really talking about how God's people are supposed to be united in Christ completely, without any divisions. I mean, really, you could look so much at how we do church now and what we do wrong, and in this one phrase, even how we think of ourselves as the body, the way that we conceive of ourselves really would strike a dissonant note against this phrase. The last part, for through him we both have access to the Father by one spirit. Yes, both. He himself is our peace. These two thoughts are linked. Our peace gives us access to the Father. The Gentiles were separated, but really what he's also saying is we're all separated. It's the peace, Jesus, the peace, that brings us and gives us access to the Father. No one can come to the Father but by me, Echo, right here. This is it. You want access to the Father because access only comes in Christ, being wholly subsumed into who he is. And that's why he is our peace, because vertically he has made peace between us and God, not just between Jew and Gentile, not just breaking the dividing line horizontally, but he's our peace. We have access to the Father, both of us. Both have access. There is no other way. And that adds a lot of gravity to the end of this passage. So you can see it all together. There again are the places where you can see him talking about being in Christ. In his flesh, in himself, in one body, through him. The whole focus constantly refers to being in Christ. Yes? I've been thinking about what you said earlier about how um, we could take this argument about the Jews and the Gentiles and apply it to our context where we're the ones who are in as the Jews and others are non-believers. And I think the same way you could take the law and kind of superimpose on how we think of biblical concepts like we use, what we believe about doctrine to divide even within ourselves and to distance ourselves from others, but Christ's actual message is one of inclusiveness and peace. So I think that's... That's something that 
that I take away from something like this. Yeah, it's amazing the kind of uh, dividing walls we've set up even within the church, right? Or the way that people split over non-negotiable, I put those in quotes, doctrines that people cannot live together. And doesn't that right there highlight how we miss what it means to be the body of Christ? The body of Christ, I know we like that passage where is everybody an arm, is everybody a leg. So like if you don't agree with somebody, doctrinally go, okay, you go be the leg and I'll be the arm. But this concept of being in Christ is so unifying that it would be hard. It's not to, to put aside Paul's teachings about the functions, but it really is to set aside thinking like that, like we can somehow compromise our unity in any way by just saying, okay, well, we just disagree, and we'll just go our separate ways, and that's somehow okay. So, good comment. Any others before we close? Here's what we're going to do. Let me close in prayer, and then we're going to do uh, just a short liturgy for Advent and close. Lord God, we scarcely can scratch these words, because if we're confronted with them, I fear that we're going to indict ourselves, and maybe that's the purpose of our study tonight to see the places where we struggle for independence, see the places that we struggle with fear and pride and suspicion and skepticism of others, and see the places, Lord, where we lack even the desire to be so unified in you that we would lose the very essence of the things that would give us credit in this life as if they mattered. Lord, I only know that these are what your words require. And since I can't reach them, I pray that your Holy Spirit is the one that transforms us to be more and more like this by being in Christ, your Spirit in us, changing us from the inside. So I submit that to you tonight. And on behalf of everyone here, pray this in your name. Amen.